Let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews 11, 11, 39, and 40. But we'll begin reading at Hebrews 11, 32. 11, 32. God provided something better. God provided something better. Hebrews 11, 32. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Let's pray. Our Lord, we pray that you'll teach us what it means to endure with the faith that we have, the faith that you have granted to us. And teach us, Father, to put our hope in the things to come, in the world to come, in that which you have provided, which is better, a lasting, abiding possession, not earthly inheritances, not earthly property, not earthly things, but things that are heavenly, eternal, that are unseen, that we believe by faith. Grant us increase of faith, increase of this hope, this endurance, this comfort, this peace, because we have fixed our hope on heavenly things. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in this passage, we come to the end of our chapter, chapter 11, where the Apostle has introduced to us the necessity of living by faith and the fact that there were many others of the past, many others in the Old Testament, who indeed lived by faith and manifested their true faith by their godliness, their heroic acts, their trust in God, in what God had promised to them. And they did so in the face of death. They did so in the face of imminent death, that is. They were persecuted to the point that their enemies either threatened death or put them to death. And even they themselves endured in the faith until they died. They endured in the faith until they died, such as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and many others. They remained true to the faith until the day of their death. They did not deny God before they died. They did not reject God and the gospel of God before they died. So death was in their face for their whole life. They wanted to be faithful to God until the day they died and they saw God, or they wanted to re remain faithful to God even though their persecutors were threatening them to die. Now, 
What kind of a person would live his life this way? What kind of a person would live his life this way? Enduring afflictions, enduring hardships, enduring uncertainties and persecutions and violence, threats against oneself and threats against one's family. Who in the world would live this way? Who in the world would live this way except for someone who has true faith in the world to come? Someone who has true faith in the world to come would live this way. And in fact, that's why he ends his message here in chapter 11. He ends it by saying that all the people of God, this is the way they live. They live for the things to come. Verse 39, he begins by telling us, and all these. All these are not just what he mentioned from verse 32 onwards, but all of those in the chapter. He has mentioned them before, for example, in chapter 11, verse 13. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. All these are all the ones he has mentioned, and he reminds us in verse 32, he has mentioned a few others, but he doesn't have time to explain everything about everybody. He could have said many more things about many other righteous men and women of the Old Testament, but time has failed him. There isn't enough time or enough space to treat the whole matter. All these, so all of the saints of the Old Testament, they lived this way. They all lived this way. Now, if they lived it that way, and we are of the same nature as they are, the implication is, should we not live this way? That's why he's given us a big list. He has given us a long list of faithful ones from the Old Testament because we are just like they. They have a human nature just like we do. They face the same trials of life that we face. They were the ones who have a sinful nature just like we have a sinful nature. They were the ones who had to live by faith just like we have to live by faith. So if we are just like them, and there were so many of them who did that, why can't we? Why shouldn't we? Indeed, we should. We should be just like them. Notice, too, that when he is encouraging us to be just like them, he is actually elevating us, in a sense. Because in our natural condition, when we're born into the world, and without faith in Christ, we would be nothing. We would be nothing. We would be worthless. We would be detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. That's the way we would be. But now, he's saying, just like they were approved by God, we also can be approved by God by living the same way that they did. Living by faith in the promises of God. Living by faith in Christ, our Lord and Savior. We can be just like them by the same kind of faith and obedience. What kind of privilege has he granted to us? This is only by grace that we could be counted with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, and all the rest. Only by faith in Christ could we be numbered with them. That's why Jesus said that a time will come when many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in Matthew 8, 11, and 12. He told us that we would be sitting at the same table with those 
patriarchs. What a privilege. All because of grace through faith in Christ. Further, he tells us in verse 39 that all of these gained approval. They all gained approval through their faith. When he says gained approval, it's not the first time he has mentioned such a phrase. For he set out at the beginning of this chapter to prove this point. Notice in chapter 11, verse 2. Chapter 11, verse 2, he says, For by it the men of old gained approval. By what? By faith. By true faith, the men of old gained approval. And then look at verse 4. Verse 4 will tell us in whose eyes we actually gained approval. It doesn't tell us explicitly in verse 2 or in our verse in verse 39, but verse 4 will. Verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. In verse 4, because of Abel's faith, he offered a better sacrifice, and then it says he obtained the testimony, or he obtained the approval. Well, who approved it? Uh, who testified about it? It says right there, God testifying about his gifts. God testified. God is the one, in other words, when he sees our faith manifested in righteous deeds, he is the one who approves of it. He is the one who testifies of it. He is the one who gives us his word of approval that we are acceptable and, and valued in his sight. God is the one. And so, therefore, when we live by faith, we're not living so much for ourselves or for one another. It, there is a sense in which we benefit ourselves and we benefit one another when we live by true faith. But ultimately, the one who is approving of us is God himself. And that's where our focus should be. Do we live by faith in order for us to have the grace of God or the favor of God, the approval of God, the testimony of God telling us and telling all who hear God say these words that we are accepted, we are approved, we are received in the sight of God. Is that why we live? We must live that way. Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, 32 and 33, Matthew 10, 32. Everyone, therefore, who shall confess me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever shall deny me before men, I also will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. We must confess Christ before men, and if we do confess Christ before men, even in the face of persecution and hardships, if we confess him before men, Christ will confess us before the Father in heaven. When he confesses us before the Father in heaven, that will be on the day of judgment. On the day of judgment, when Christ says that he receives us, we are approved by him, he, that we belong to him, that we have endured with this faith until the end. 
But, if, but on the other hand, if we don't do that, if we deny him before men, then Christ will deny us before the Father who is in heaven. Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5. Revelation 3, verse 5. He who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who overcomes, well, how do we overcome? This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith, 1 John 5, 4. The way we overcome is with enduring faith. We overcome, and when we do overcome, we will be clothed in white garments, signifying our holiness and righteousness and acceptance in the presence of God. And our names will not be erased from the book of life. We will be recorded there, and our names will reside there forever and ever. And Christ will confess our name before his Father and before his angels. Not only before the Father, but also the holy angels. This is the kind of approval or acceptance that should be in mind for us. When we think about living by faith, we should think about living by faith not so much before men or in the sight of men, though they do benefit, but in the sight of God. Are we living by faith in the sight of God? He has already told us in chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 4, that we should be living in the sight of God. 4.13 And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. We are supposed to live before God because we will be held accountable by God one day. Whatever we do, everything is open and laid bare before Him. His eyes see everything in the open and in the secret places, in the hidden places. God sees everything and we will be held accountable to Him. So, do we not want to hear, as Christ said, in Matthew 25, 21. Well done, good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of your master. This is the kind of approval we should be seeking. The approval of God, who tells us, well done, good and faithful slave. Further, how is it that they gained approval? He says they gained approval through their faith. Through their faith. Now, remember, we have said several times to remind us so that we not misunderstand. We should not misunderstand that when he says through their faith, that it is something that they conjure up. That it is something that exists in every person that he just must exercise. It's not faith that is common to every man, every person who lives. This faith is an uncommon faith. This is a particular faith. It is a gifted faith. It is something that comes from heaven and that God grants only to His sheep, only to His chosen ones. It is not a faith that exists in every person. There is no such faith that the Bible speaks of that 
is beneficial for people's salvation that exists in every person. No. Every person, every individual who ever lives does not have this kind of unique, special, gifted faith. It is only that which comes from heaven to some people who live throughout all time. That is why the Bible says in, in uh, Philippians 1.29, To you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. It is granted to believe and to suffer. And it was the Philippians, and all of us who have the faith of the Philippians, it is granted to us not only to believe, but also to suffer. Everyone does not believe and suffer for the name of Christ. Only those who belong to Christ suffer for His sake, which means it is a particular faith. It is a gifted faith. It is a granted faith. It's not something common to everyone. But also, we must note that faith is necessary. Faith is necessary. It doesn't do to say that faith is unnecessary. That there are people who can live their life without faith, without the true faith, without faith in Christ, and still go to heaven. This verse, as well as the whole book and the whole Bible, actually militate against that belief. That people, just as long as they are good, just as long as they live up to the light that they have, or that they make sure they don't commit certain heinous sins, certain major sins, as long as they don't do that, even if they don't have faith, they are approved by God and they go to heaven. That is common. People commonly think that way, believe that way. However, this verse teaches us that it requires faith. Faith is necessary in order for us to enter into the kingdom of heaven. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Mark 1.15 Jesus taught, repent and believe in the gospel. That's how this kingdom of God can be accessed. That's how we can enter that kingdom of God. It requires faith. It does not happen automatically, and it does not happen blindly. It happens consciously through faith, through their faith, their personal faith, which also teaches us it takes their faith, personal faith, individual faith. That is, the faith of a parent cannot save the child. The faith of a child cannot save the parent. The faith of one friend cannot save another friend. We cannot save others by our faith. It is required of them to possess the same kind of faith that we possess in order for them to be approved by God, in order for them to enter the kingdom of God, for them to be saved from their sins, for them to have eternal life. It does not do for one person to have faith and the other not have faith. There is no guarantee of the one who lacks faith that he will go to heaven. That's not the way it works. Each one, when he hears the gospel, must believe the gospel to be saved. It requires faith in each one individually. Furthermore, let's also make a distinction between faith and works. Faith and works. 
he has certainly emphasized faith in this chapter, but not to the exclusion of works. We are reminded of the fact that after saying, by faith, Abel, by faith, Enoch, by faith, Noah, and all the rest, they committed righteous deeds on the basis of faith. They had true faith, and their true faith showed in their good deeds. It showed in their righteousness. It showed in their faithfulness. It showed in their holiness. It showed in them believing things that were impossible to believe if they did not have this true faith. So true faith produces works. It produces good deeds. It produces a manifestation. As we read earlier in Titus 1.16, it's they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. It's impossible to say you know God and then have your life be the opposite of what you say. If you know God who is light and there's no darkness in Him whatsoever at all, 1 John 1.5, God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. It's impossible to say we know God, we profess to know God, we claim to know God, we cannot do that and then have our life be contrary to that. And that's what he is saying here in Hebrews 11. By faith, they acted in ways that were righteous in the sight of God. This is the connection. It isn't the works that save, it is the faith that saves. But true faith manifests itself, shows as evidence in good works that faith that is unseen is visible in good works. And one more aspect about faith. And that is, faith is not faith. Faith is not of any worth or any value unless it is faith in Christ. It does not do to say people have faith in a God, in whatever God, in whatever God, whether Allah or the gods of Mormonism, or the god of the so-called Jehovah's Witnesses, or the gods of Hinduism, or the gods of Buddhism, or the anim uh, animistic gods, or spirits that people worship in many remote places, and even in the United States, the tribal religion of the United States is um, animistic, that is, they worship spirits in objects as gods. So. Having faith in any of these gods is worthless. It's demonic. It does not save anybody's soul. We cannot have faith in any other god but the God of the Bible. And the only way to know the God of the Bible is in Christ. In Christ. Adam believed in the coming of the death of Christ. Abel believed in the coming work of Christ on the cross. Enoch believed in the coming of Christ's work on the cross. Noah believed in the coming work of Christ on the cross. Abraham did so. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, they all did. They all looked forward to the coming of the death of Christ on the cross as a payment for their sins so that they could be forgiven of sins and have eternal life. They all put their hope, their faith, in this coming Christ. He has not emphasized the point in this chapter. However, it has not escaped his mention. 
Look at Hebrews 11, 24. Hebrews 11, 24. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses rejected all that he possessed in Egypt in the court of Pharaoh because he was considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. He was looking at the reproach of Christ, the humiliation of Christ, the persecution of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ. This is what he had his hope fixed on. He considered that as more important than all of the physical wealth of Egypt that was in his possession. Moses did. Moses believed in the death of Christ. When it says the reproach of Christ, he means the death of Christ. His humiliation, his persecution, his afflictions throughout his life, and culminating in his death on the cross. Moses believed in Christ. I said he has not emphasized the point, but he has actually mentioned it in verse 26. And furthermore, if we read the whole letter, there are other ways in which he emphasizes the point that animal sacrifices cannot save. He's already said that. Angels cannot save. He's already said that. Moses cannot save. He's already said that. The law cannot save. He's already said that. He keeps on telling these Hebrew Christians that you must maintain faith in Christ. He's the only one who can save. And then in chapter 13, verse 8, he said, Jesus Christ the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. Yesterday, today, and forever. Why did he say Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever? Because the faith that Abraham had was in Jesus Christ yesterday. And then today, the faith is in Jesus Christ, the only source of salvation. And this is the way it will be forever, in every generation. There is only one true gospel, only one gospel, and that gospel correctly defined, includes belief in the death of Christ for the payment of our sins, for us to be forgiven and to receive eternal life. If our definition of the gospel does not include the death of Christ, it is a false gospel. It's a vague, ambiguous, and false gospel, according to Galatians 1 and Galatians 3. Further. It says in verse 39 that they did not receive what was promised. They did not receive what was promised. Now, at this point, it can be confusing because he has said they received promises, they obtained promises, but here he says did not receive what was promised. Well, the difference is that they did receive tokens or uh, brief manifestations of promises fulfilled that had to do ultimately with the eternal promise of the eternal inheritance found in, in Christ and Christ alone. So they obtained promises, that is, throughout their life, if God said to Abraham, you will have a son, Isaac, he did have a son, Isaac, so they obtained that promise. So that hope and that promise was fulfilled in Abraham's lifetime. Or let's say in the time of Joshua. Joshua was told, and the people were told, I promise you 
Go and conquer the Canaanites, and I will give you victory over the Canaanites, and you will inherit this whole land of Canaan. Well, that promise was also fulfilled. It was fulfilled. So, in that sense, promises were fulfilled. Promises were fulfilled throughout the Old Testament, in one sense. However, in another sense, the promise itself, or the full manifestation of the promise, or the eternal experience of the promise, promises, singular or plural, they were not fulfilled, and they're not even fulfilled in our day. Those things are yet future. So there are two ways in which promises are fulfilled. Now, let's see, for example, on the one hand, that he actually does say promises were fulfilled. So he's not contradicting himself, he just means it in two ways. Look at chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11, and verse 33. 11, 33, he tells us, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises. Obtained promises. So there he's asserted that, yes, the many saints of the Old Testament were promised things by God, and they received those promises. Many, many examples of that. They received those promises. But in the ultimate, complete and full sense, they did not receive and we have not received, because we're going to receive these together. Now, when he says it in the singular in verse 39, I believe he means the eternal state in Christ. The eternal state in Christ. When he says, did not receive what was promised, I believe he's talking still future. And why? Look at chapter 10. Look at chapter 10 and verse 36. Chapter 10 and verse 36. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. That you may receive after doing the will of God. Endurance, how long? Endurance until death or the return of Christ. Then you will have done the will of God in full, and then you will receive what was promised in full. That's what he means. Look back up to verse 34, 1034. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. A better possession and an abiding one. So our physical property, yes, people might steal them, take them away from us, but we have a better and an abiding possession. He's talking about eternity, what we inherit throughout eternity. And speaking of that, chapter 9, chapter 9 and verse 15. Chapter 9 and verse 15. The promise of the eternal inheritance. This, I believe, is what he has in mind. 9.15 says, And for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, in order that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. There we have it. The promise, singular, of the eternal inheritance. What is the promise? He equates it to the eternal inheritance. 
This is what he has in mind, I believe. He's saying that a day is coming, a day is coming when all that God has promised forever and ever will be fulfilled in all of us. That's the sense in which they did not receive it. Now, he needs to say this in order for us to make sure we not impugn the saints. We not impugn the saints. He's trying to take away from us an argument, a way for us to slander the saints of the Old Testament. Because many people will say, and even our own critics, our own persecutors, when they mock us, they will say, you say you have eternal life, but I don't see it. Show me the eternal life you have. They will mock us. They'll taunt us like that. And they will say in the Old Testament, those people, they were all persecuted. A lot of them were mistreated. Some of them were thrown into prison. And, why would, and some of them were put to death. Why did all that happen to them? God must not have been happy with them. God must have been um, this, um, um, hating them because of their wickedness and their sins. If they had just lived like everybody else, then they would have been fat and happy. They would have lived a long life, just like everybody else did. All the other people did. All the nations around them did that. So the reason they were persecuted, the reason they didn't have much, the reason why they were put to death, the reason why they were thrown into prison, had to do with God not really approving of them, God not having anything better for them, because those people showed by their, by their unfortunate circumstances, by the persecutions they received, and how people mistreated them, that God really wasn't happy with them. God didn't like them. This is what our critics will say to us. You say God is with you, but then if God is with you, then why don't you have millions of dollars? If God is with you, then why aren't you going to live until you're 100 years old? If God is with you, then why is it that everybody hates you? If God is with you, why is it that you don't have 100,000 friends? That's what they say to us, right? But God is with us. God is with us, and this is why he's saying they did not receive what was promised because what was promised has always been in the purpose of God, in the plan of God, in the decree of God, to have it fulfilled yet future when Christ returns. When Christ returns, then all these things will come together. When Christ returns, then we will have 100% the upper hand. Mm -hmm. Then they will see how wealthy we really are. Then they will see how healthy we really are. Because the health and wealth that lasts for eternity is what we possess. We possess it in a pledge or a deposit now, but we will receive it forever and ever. The health is the better resurrection, the resurrection of life. And the wealth is what? We are kings and priests and we will reign with Christ for all eternity. What we do not own now, we will own the world in the world to come, the whole earth in the world to come. This is why Peter says in reference to this promise, 2 Peter 3, 13, he says, For we are looking, but according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. According to his promise. This is the promise, I believe, Hebrews 11, 39 and 40 also mentions. This promise of a new heavens and a new earth upon the return of Christ in which 
righteousness dwells. This was the hope of the saints of the Old Testament, and this is our hope also. Let's see also in verse 40. Also in verse 40. Remember, we just mentioned that all of this is according to the purpose of God. Well, he says so explicitly in verse 40. Notice in verse 40. Because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Because God had provided something better. See, because persecutions happen, people are prone to thinking that the world is chaotic, God is out of control, Satan and wicked people are stronger than God and God's angels. People think that way, that God is hopeless, he's helpless, he's hapless, he doesn't have the power to overcome these things. But according to verse 40, because God had provided something better. If God is providing something better, that shows that God is in control. He is God Almighty. He is the ruler of the heavens and the earth. He is the one who can say a word and send forth his angels, innumerable angels, to do his will, to do whatever he calls them to do. At his beck and call, they will do whatever God wants them to do. Isn't that what Jesus said? When the Son of Man returns in the glory of his Father with the holy angels, he will send forth his angels to the four corners of the earth and call forth his elect and gather them together. Isn't this what Jesus said? And isn't this what the Bible promises? That God is mighty and he does have all the power. We should be reminded of this power of God working in our circumstances for a fulfillment of something better. Working for our benefit for something better. In chapter 1, for example, chapter 1, 1 to 4, chapter 1, 1 to 4, it says in verse 2, about the Son, the Son of God, whom He appointed, that is, the Father appointed, heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. And He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as He has inherited a more excellent name than they. Now, who is more powerful and who is better than the angels but Christ? And what did Christ do? Or how did God appoint him? He appointed him in verse 2, heir of all things. So he owns all things. The whole universe is owned by Christ. Christ made the world. If he made the world, can he not sustain the world he made? Of course he can, because it says in verse 3, he upholds all things by his powerful word. The powerful word of Christ is that which upholds, sustains, and maintains the whole universe. And he is now reigning and ruling at the right hand of the majesty on high. God the Father's right hand, Christ is seated there, reigning and ruling. So it should not be a surprise to us that even though we, when we lack faith, we don't see it. We should have faith and see that God is stronger and more powerful than any critics or even our doubts, even our doubts can overcome. God is more powerful than our doubts. Our doubts will not subvert 
the provision of God. Our doubts will not subvert the purpose of God in our life. God will reign and God will rule. Notice also chapter 3 and verse 4. Chapter 3, Hebrews 3, 4. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. The builder of all things is God. So if God is the builder of all things, does he not have control of all things? Certainly. And so when he has control, he provides something better. Chapter 4 and verse 13. Chapter 4, 13. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. All creatures will be held accountable before God. All creatures, including us, including demons, including wicked people, whoever they may be, will be held accountable to Him. All things are open and laid bare before Him. Chapter 6, chapter 6 and verse 17, 617, speaking of what God's Word says and how He will make sure it is fulfilled. 617, in the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath in order that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement. We who have fled for refuge and laying hold of the hope set before us. God, when he speaks a word and then when he reiterates or emphasizes that word he has spoken with an oath, when he swears, when he swears an oath, when God does that and it's impossible for him to lie, he does it this way so that we might have strong encouragement, strong encouragement to persevere for that which we do not see yet in its fulfillment. Keep on going because we have fled to him, we have laid hold, uh, laid hold of the hope set before us. This is what he means when he says in chapter 1140, because God had provided something better. If God is in his sovereign will, by his almighty power, providing something for us, let's believe what he says. And not only believe what he says, but note that he has said it with an oath. He has said it, swearing by himself, since he cannot swear by anyone greater. Let's believe what he has provided. Now, what he has provided is something better. This is what faith requires to believe. We have to believe that since God has provided it for us, since God has said and promised that he has provided it for us, it is something better than what we see right now. It is something better than the present world. He has been teaching us that God has something better for us in Christ all along. He's been saying that in chapter 1. In chapter 1, something better than the angels is Christ. He's superior to the angels. In chapter 2, something better than man is the Son of Man. In chapter 3, something better than Moses is that is he who is greater than Moses. In chapter 5, when he introduces the Levitical priesthood, he says that Christ is better and more superior to the Levitical priesthood. 
because he has the priesthood of Melchizedek. The covenant, the old covenant, it was a good covenant, but there is something better than the old covenant, and that is the new covenant. Chapter 8 tells us that the new covenant is better than the old covenant. In chapter chapters 9 and 10, he told us that there are better sacrifices, sacrifices, the sacrifice of Christ. 9.23, therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these things, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. By better sacrifices, he means the sacrifice of Christ is better than the animal sacrifices. That's something better that we have because of the work of Christ. 10.4, chapter 10, verse 4. Further, this contrast. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Yes, Moses commanded for bulls and goats to be offered, but they could never take away sins. Only Christ could take away sins. 10.10, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. One sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ is a superior, better sacrifice than anything preceding it. 10 and verse 14. 10, 14. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. We who are sanctified for all time, whether Old or New Testament, the one offering has perfected us. The one offering is all we need. Then, finally though, something better for us, because Christ is better than anyone else or anything else, what is it that Christ, because of his work, provides for us? What is it that he provides for us? Chapter 10 and verse 34. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. The better possession and an abiding one is the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is something better for us that God has prepared for us. God has given us this uh, privilege of being kings and priests and reigning upon the earth, Revelation 5.10. We have this privilege that we are granted this place next to Christ to reign and rule with Him forever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth. This is the better possession. All because of the work of Christ, Christ makes us an heir with Him. We are an heir with Him and we possess this forever and ever. Then, in verse 40, he says, so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. They should not be made perfect. God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What is it that God has given to us he has given to us to enjoy those things that are also meant for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What they will enjoy, they will enjoy not apart from us, but with us, he says. With us, they will enjoy those things. So here again, he has elevated us 
He has exalted us. We are humble now, but we will be exalted later. We are last now, but we shall be first later. Right now, we don't have it the way everybody else has it in this world, but a time will come when Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all of us will enjoy all of these things together. So when will that happen? That has to happen when Christ returns. When Christ returns, what events will happen? When he returns, he will gather all of us who live currently, and we shall suddenly be changed. 1 Corinthians 15 teaches, we shall suddenly be changed. Now we have a mortal body. Now we have a decaying mortal body, susceptible to pain and death, right? But when Christ returns and he's there in the sky, suddenly we will be changed and we will have immortality that clothes us, that overcomes us, that consumes us. We will be immortal forever and ever. Those who are dead in Christ already, they are dead in Christ already, they will rise up from the dead and have immortal resurrected bodies. They will meet us. And those who are in heaven, those who are in heaven, when they descend with Christ, they too will have immortal bodies. So all of us will possess a resurrected, immortal, glorified, glorious body that will remain forever and ever, and we will dwell in the presence of Christ and reign and rule with Him in the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is what the Bible has given to us, privileged us to enter into this kind of eternal glory. The Bible has given this to us by the gospel of Christ, by what Jesus did on the cross for us. We're not going to enjoy it separately from all the rest, but all the rest of the saints and us will have all of this together. There is a time and a place when all of this will be fulfilled 100% and we will enjoy this 100% for all eternity. This is in the provision of God or in the plan of God for all time. For all time. This is what he means. That something better for us so that apart from us they should not be made perfect. We all will enjoy the same blessings. We all shall enjoy the same blessings. Now, a couple of passages just to sum up what we have heard. The first one is Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We'll read verses 16 and 17. Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. We who have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, he testifies to us that we are children of God. And not only are we children, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. He is King of kings and Lord of lords, and we will reign with him as a king, as kings forever and ever. But first, what needs to happen? We must suffer. Isn't that what he said in Hebrews 11? He said it throughout the chapter. Suffering has to happen first, and then glory happens second or last. First, there is suffering, and secondly, and forever, there is glory with him. 
we must suffer, he says, if indeed we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the way of the whole Bible for, for all time. The people of God live this way. And then secondly, secondly, Colossians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3 will also sum up what we have heard. Colossians 3, verse 1. Colossians 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Then what should we do in the meantime? Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self who is being renewed, to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man. But Christ is all and in all. Amen. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, our gracious Lord, thank you for providing such a blessing to us, something that we do not deserve. We don't deserve, Lord, to live forever in all eternity. But we thank you, Lord, for reminding us of this truth and granting us hope and peace and comfort faith, Lord, faith that will endure until the very end. Lord, you've provided this for us, and nothing gives us peace and contentment. Nothing gives us the kind of joy that sustains us and enables us to think about you and all of your goodness, but what you have done for us in our Lord Christ. Thank you for what he has accomplished, and thank you for this eternal inheritance. Thank you for this better and abiding possession that we shall have, all because we belong to Christ. Don't let us, Lord, be wayward, and don't let us be tempted by the things of the world. Strengthen us, build us up, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Guide us into all truth and all righteousness. In the name of Christ, amen.